You're listening to Comedy Central. August 6, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. is the Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia. Stacey Abrams is joining us, everyone. It's an amazing story. If she wins, she will be the first black female governor in America's history. Yeah. While her opponent, her opponent, if he, if he wins, he would be the 8,500th white dude governor so, history either way. <laughs> but first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Right now, the nation of Venezuela is not having a good time. The country's bankrupt, there's food shortages, and something tells me everyone is not a fan of the president. Next to the alleged assassination attempt playing out on live TV, the president of Venezuela speaking in a public square, interrupted by a series of blasts. <laughs> His bodyguards jumping in to protect him, holding up shields. The president says it was an attack by drones armed with bombs. Okay, that is insane. Why are they trying to protect the president with yoga mats? <laughs> like, what is going on there? I knew that they were pretty left-leaning down there, but that's next level. Quickly, get into downward dog, sir! <laughs> now, luckily for Maduro, he survived that attack, but I wouldn't be too secure if I were him because he's holding his military parade but did you see how they reacted when the explosion goes off? <laughs> what the hell is that, military? It's like left, right, left, right. Ah, oh, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. So uh, it's still developing, and this is really a weird story. I don't know what to make of it, other than I like how Maduro wears a sash. It's like, <laughs> it's like he won Venezuela in a beauty pageant. I love it. <laughs> Meanwhile. Somewhere in the Middle East, there's news about the world's worst royal wedding. And the son of Osama bin Laden is now married to the daughter of a 9-11 hijacker. 29-year-old Hamza bin Laden, here on the left, married the daughter of Mohammed Atta. The family says Hamza is now an al-Qaeda leader himself, vowing to avenge his father's death. Wow. Bin Laden's son married a 9-11 hijacker's daughter. I guess congratulations to the happy couple. I mean, if you want to get them a gift, they're registered on the no-fly list. <laughs> but yeah, I, I heard... <laughs> I heard... I heard it was a really, really small, intimate ceremony. You know, just closest family and hostages. But, uh, you know, just like with every wedding, there were some terrorists who didn't want to attend. They had to come up with excuses. They were like, oh, I'm sorry, Hamza. I totally want to go, but I'm blowing myself up on Thursday, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> In other news, for years, America's most famous conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, has said that they are out to get him. Well, today, they got him. YouTube, Apple, and Facebook joining Spotify in removing content from Alex Jones and his InfoWars brand, each claiming the content violated their policies against glorifying violence and promoting hate. 
That's right, Alex Jones is officially off all of the major platforms. And if you're one of Alex Jones's fans, this isn't as bad as it sounds, because you'll still be able to hear him everywhere on Earth if he just speaks in his normal tone of voice. <laughs> yeah, I bet he'll try sneak back onto YouTube, though, pretending to be a vlogger. He's gonna be like, oh, what's up, guys? It's me, Alex. <laughs> uh, no hate, this is my tutorial on how contouring is secretly controlling your mind! <laughs> all right, let's move on to our top story. This week, President Trump is officially on vacation, and he deserves it. Do you know how much effort it takes to destabilize the entire world? You don't. <laughs> and for his retreat, the president will be staying at his country club in Bedminster, which is a real town in New Jersey, even though Bedminster sounds like the nickname Trump would give himself when he's relaxing. You know, it sounds like he'd be like, for the rest of this week, I'm officially the Bedminster. <laughs> Pence, you're the vice Bedminster. And now, unfortunately, even though Trump gets a vacation, we don't get a vacation from him. Because Saturday, he decided to take a break from his break to attend a rally in Ohio for tomorrow's primary. And what's great is that nobody invited him to the primary. He just showed up. Yeah. And I love that Trump is now just crashing campaign rallies like the Kool-Aid man. He's just, you know? A guy is up on stage making a point about fiscal responsibility and Trump just bursts through the wall like, who's ready to talk shit about Chuck Todd? <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, and don't worry about the wall. Mexico will pay for it. They'll fix it. <laughs> so this was supposed to be a rally for an Ohio congressional candidate, but Trump decided to cover his face with Vaseline and campaign for his friends on Fox. MSNBC is so corrupt. It's so disgusting. So disgusting. Here's the good news. The guys that we love, right? They're blowing them away in the ratings. Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, Steve Deucey, Ainsley, Brian, so many others. They're blowing them away in the ratings. Oh, excuse me. I almost forgot I would have been in big trouble. The great Lou Dobbs, right? What? How is this the president of the United States? <laughs> like, he sounds like a kid saying goodnight to his favorite stuffed animals. <laughs> like, goodnight, Hannity Bear. Nighty-night, Tucker. Sleep tight, double deuce. Who am I forgetting? Of course, the great Lou Dobbs. Lou Dobbs, <laughs> you fell under the bed, but I found you. You can't hide from the bed minister. You can. I found you, Lou Dobbs. I found you. And... And you might think that was weird, but something tells me on Monday morning, the Fox anchors came into work like this. Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, Steve Deucey, Ainsley, Ryan, the great Ludovs. They're loving it. Uh, but remember, remember, this is the president's summer vacation, which means he has a lot of time on his thumbs, and he's putting it to good use. Our top story this morning, President Trump taking to Twitter overnight to bash NBA superstar LeBron James. Mr. Trump wrote, LeBron James was just interviewed by the dumbest man on television, Don Lemon. He made LeBron look smart, which isn't easy to do. Really? You know, Trump calling someone the dumbest man on television is like R. Kelly singing about you locking girls up. <laughs> Why is someone in your basement? Why won't you let her out? Really, R. Kelly? Really? <laughs> so now, the president is beefing with LeBron. But what exactly did King James do to get the president so mad? 
What would you say to the president if he's sitting right here? Uh, I would never sit across from him because one, because I believe our president is kind of trying to divide us. Um, but I think kind of. Yeah, he is. He is. Now I don't want to say kind of. He's, he's dividing us. And, and what I noticed over the last few months um, that he's kind of used sport to kind of divide us. And, I, and that's something that I can't relate to because I know that sport was the first time I ever was around someone white. Wow. That is so powerful. Imagine going through your whole life and never realizing that there were other people out there who were so easy to dunk on. So once again, President Trump is feuding with a famous black person who dared to criticize him. And now it's got all this attention, which makes me wonder, what do I have to do? (laughs) Why do you ignore me, Donald, every night I'm out here? We even wrote a book! (laughs) The Donald J. Trump Presidential Twitter Library on sale everywhere. What do I have to do? (laughs) Anyway, the fact that Trump went after LeBron James wasn't that surprising. What was surprising is who came to LeBron's defense. The first lady, Melania Trump, contradicts her husband once again, appraising LeBron James for his charitable work uh, as her husband attacks him. Her communications director issuing a statement praising James, saying it looks like LeBron James is working to do good things on behalf of our next generation and that the first lady would be open to visiting the I Promise School in Akron. Guys, guys. I'm starting to think that maybe Melania's not happy in her marriage. (laughs) Because, I mean, this is insane. Now Melania's saying she wants to go visit LeBron's school. And don't forget, don't forget, this is now the fourth time that the First Lady has gone publicly against her husband, right? She spoke out against kids in cages. She refused to stop watching CNN on Air Force One. And remember, she has been spotted hanging out with vegetables. So, English may not be her first language, but she clearly is fluent in throwing shade. (laughs) And this is what's happened. This is where we are. Melania Trump has sided with LeBron. And if anything, I think LeBron should return the favor. Because if there's anyone who can tell her how to get out of an unhappy relationship, it's him. We'll be right back. (laughs) Welcome back to The Daily Show. Back, Back in May, Back in May, President Trump said he was pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal for a lot of Obamas, I mean, reasons. And (laughs) tonight, it becomes official. At midnight tonight, the United States will reimpose sanctions on Iran months after President Trump announced he was unilaterally pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. The sanctions will target Iran's auto industry, steel and aluminum manufacturing, and other metals, including gold. At least a dozen global companies have pulled out of the country in anticipation of the sanctions. No, not Iran's auto industry. (laughs) Now I won't be able to buy the 2019 pay can. No. (laughs) Ah, now what car can I rev up to 25 miles an hour and cruise with the windows down because they won't roll up? No. (laughs) I'll just have to buy a Mercedes. (laughs) Now, obviously, obviously, uh, Iran and the United States are not friends, right? They beef harder than Elon Musk and everyone on Twitter. But this, (laughs) this wasn't always this way. So... Let's talk about how the bad blood started. In tonight's segment, what had happened was... 
exactly did America become enemies with Iran? Well, what had happened was, back in 1951, Iran was a rising nation, starting, uh, you know, a path to democracy, thanks to a new leader named Mohammad Mossadegh. Yeah, this guy, right? And it's weird seeing an Iranian leader smile, right? <laughs> yeah, because normally when you see Iranian leaders, they always have that angry look on their face, like, like they just caught you masturbating. They've always got that look, yeah? <laughs> yeah, so is that, that look? Look how angry he is. It looks like he caught you masturbating to a picture of him being angry. <laughs> but Mossadegh was incredibly popular in Iran, and for one major reason. You see, before him, Great Britain controlled Iran's oil fields for decades, and Mossadegh, he kicked the British out. Yeah, and now, of course, the British did not like that, because if there's one thing that makes white people angry, it's taking back what they took from you, <laughs> all right? hey, two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> so now, so now, Britain and Iran were feuding. And both of them turned to America for help. Iran asked America to help protect their democracy. And Britain was like, Ayo, America, do you want oil? And America was like, yeah. Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, is overthrown in a coup organized by the CIA, clearing the way for closer energy ties between Washington and Iranian monarch Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. Ouch, ouch. Iran asks the US for help and then the US overthrows them using the CIA. Mm. It's like Iran called 911 and then the cops came and shot them. <laughs> Until this day, Iranian people are still mad about the US toppling its government. And I don't blame them because think about how mad America is because Russia sent some Facebook posts. Now imagine Iran. And what made Iran even angrier is how easy it was for America to do it. Kermit Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt's grandson was the CIA man who plotted the overthrow of Iran's prime minister. You had a million dollars in cash to run the coup, right? Now that's right. And we used about $60,000 of it. God damn. America overthrew Iran's democracy for just $60,000. That's like the cost of an Audi Sportback <laughs> without the sunroof. So after the US overthrew Iran's government, the relationship has never been the same, right? In 1979, Iranians had a revolution and took Americans hostage for over a year. In the 1980s, America supported Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran. In the 2000s, Iran gave Iraqis weapons to use against Americans. And then worst of all, the biggest insult is when America made the movie 300. Because don't forget, Iranians are Persians. And so America basically made a movie where Iranians looked like this. Huh? Look at this dude. Look at that. Huh? He looks like Mr. Clean went to the piercing place in the mall and was just like, give me everything. Give me everything. <laughs> and so that's basically why we are where we are today. So the next time someone asks you why Iran and America aren't friends, just tell them what had happened was. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is Georgia's Democratic nominee for governor and author of the book, Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change. Please welcome Stacey Abrams. <laughs> welcome to the show. I did not sit down properly. 
Welcome to the show. Your story is one that has been both inspirational and uh, meteoric, it feels like. And yet, on the ground, you have been doing so much work. Before we get into the story of how you've been uh, getting people voting and how you are conducting a race that many people do not believe you could win, I wanted to ask you about one thing I've noticed about you in the news, and that is, we joke about it on the show, but people often refer to you as the first black female governor. That's the one thing they say. They go, she could be the first black female governor. And then they go, and her opponent, and then they'll mention all the things that he's running on. His platform is this, 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 but she could be black and a governor. <laughs> do, do you feel like sometimes people only focus on the fact that you would be making history and not on the fact that you would be actually doing the job? I think sometimes there is a Crayola version of policymaking that happens where they do focus on color. Right. Uh, my mission is to talk about issues, to talk about education and to talk about why it's so critical that we create jobs for everyone that pay a good wage, to talk about expanding access to Medicaid so poor people don't get sick in Georgia, right. and that we have hospitals that can take care of people when they get sick. Uh, but it's hard to get them to focus on that because I think they're so surprised some by how far I've been able to come despite what they consider both a disqualifier and a really interesting fact that fits really nicely on a cryon. Right, and it's interesting that you, you wrote about that in the book as well. You, you, you speak about the difficulties of being a person of color who is trying to run in a race where people make that seem like it's some sort of hindrance. You know, people will ask you, they'll say, well, how do you plan to get out the white vote? And uh, how do you plan to get out the white vote? I, I... <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> No, it's funny because they don't, you, like you say in the book, they yeah. don't ask it the other way. So, like, yeah. what, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you stick to when people ask you that type of question? I talk to everyone about what matters. What I tell folks is I sound the same in North Georgia, which is predominantly white, in Midtown Atlanta, in Downtown Atlanta, and in Savannah. I sound the exact same. I never change who I am or what I talk about because I think that fundamentally, it doesn't really matter what race you are. You want a good governor who can lead. Right. And I think that that's, that's what I want people to see. You have been personally attacked by the president of the United States. Yes, I have. Which I feel like you would wear with a badge of honor. Um, <laughs> uh, Trump called you the open border crime-loving opponent that the Democrats have given. Yes. She's weak on vets, the military, and the Second Amendment. I'm a terrible person by his estimation. <laughs> I, let me correct this. Um, I believe in strong bipartisan federal immigration. I do not love crime. In fact, I hate crime. Uh, <laughs> I am the only candidate in this race who's actually passed legislation to protect our vets and our military, and I know how to shoot a gun. Um, I, I, I know how to shoot a gun. I know you don't point it at other people. I know how to use it effectively, and I know that gun safety means that some people shouldn't get to have guns because they hurt you. Right. When... When the presidents and your opponents talk about crime-loving, they're really referring to your prison policies and the ideas that you wish to put forth about prison reform. Why are those issues that you are so focused on? I talk very openly about the fact that I, I have a family member who has dealt with uh, prison. He's an incredible man who deserves every opportunity to be active and engaged in society. And when we as a community decide that you should be held accountable for your crimes, we also have to decide that you can come back and be a part of our community when, you're get, when you get out. Right. Uh, I've spent the last seven years working very closely with the governor of Georgia to push criminal justice reform laws 
not only transition for prisoners, but making sure we don't charge someone who's 17 as though they are 18, making sure that we decriminalize being poor. Uh, you shouldn't go to jail because you're poor, and you shouldn't stay in jail because you can't afford justice. That doesn't make sense. The, the conversations that, that people have in and around some of your ideas is, is they say, oh, I mean, uh, we understand why you would say this about, uh, you know, criminal justice reform. And, and, and why you have these views on tax. One of the, one of the ideas I, had, uh, that I heard about you that was really interesting was someone asked, they said, um, Stacey Abrams, how can she be governor when she herself is in debt? And what was interesting is you were the person who came out and told people when you were running that you are in debt. You told people that you have student loans. This is something most candidates would hide. So if somebody wants to vote for you, and you are in debt, how, how do you expect them to, to work through those two seemingly conflicting ideas? So I actually dedicate a whole chapter in my book to money. Uh, because one thing that you learn when you are in the minority is that money pay, plays as huge a part in your success as your intellect, as your capacity. It is an anchor that can drag you down. And I want people to understand that you want leaders who actually remember what it was like to have to make decisions to struggle with money, to struggle with the real choices we make every day. I have student loan debt because I went to really good schools that cost a lot of money. I have tax, I, I reported my income to, <laughs> I reported my income to the IRS. They never failed to know how much I owed them. I just told them I'll get to you. Right. I'm gonna pay, I, because I have parents who had medical needs. I have a niece uh, that my parents are raising. I have, I am responsible primarily for not just my household, but another one. And I want a leader who knows how to make decisions when things are tough, not just someone who can make easy choices because they've never had to face challenge. Right. I think it makes me a better candidate. When, when you look at the issues that are driving you in this race, one of the big things people are concerned about are the raw numbers. People are saying in order for you to win, you would have to turn out the black vote like it has never turned out before. And in many ways, that's the reason you're sitting here today. That's the reason people are taking notice is because you have motivated black people to register to vote like never before. I mean, I believe you were part of a campaign where at one point, 800,000 black people had not registered to vote. And I think that number has now diminished to 350,000, which is an insane jump. So there are two things. There are two things that I would like to understand. One, why do you find in your personal experience so many black people don't register to vote? And two, why do you think it's so important to get these people into it? It seems like an obvious answer, but, but why are you mobilizing these people in that way and how are you doing it? So when I founded the New Georgia Project in 2014 or 2013, there were 800,000 unregistered people of color, the majority of whom, 600,000 of whom were African-American. But you also had a large population of Latinos and a smaller population of Asian-Americans who weren't registered. The problem with that is we are making choices and decisions about everyone's lives. And if you're not part of the decision making, I promise you, you're still going to be affected. Uh, the really crass way I've heard it put is, look, if you're, you're either at the table or you are on the menu. And these were hundreds of thousands of people, basically the state of South Dakota, who were not engaged in deciding leadership. They were watching their hospitals get shut down. They're watching their children go to prison and they had no say. I grew up in a family that has always been a part of the civil rights movement. My parents helped register folks before it was legal. 
and they raised us to revere the right to vote. Right. I'm going to win this election because I revere the right to vote, and I'm going to talk to every single Georgian because I know their vote For me, the, the real important piece of this, and, and I think why people get confused, I want every vote, but I'm going to center the votes of those who are the least likely to be asked to vote. And that tends to be people of color, predominantly African-Americans. We, have an, we live in a nation that has spent centuries denying the right to vote mm -hmm. and spent decades creating barriers to that right to vote. And I have an opponent who is a remarkable architect of voter suppression. My mission is to tell folks he doesn't matter. You do. Your right to vote is yours, and I'm going to give you a reason to use it, because when you elect me as the next governor, your life will get better because we're going to work on it together. Thank you so much for being on the Really wonderful having you. Minority Leader is available now. Stacey Abrams, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.